Well, good morning, everybody. Wow. <laughs> How many of you want to make a difference in life? How many of you want to make an impact wherever you find yourself? Hey, some of you apparently don't want to make a difference or an impact. I don't believe you. I just think you don't want to, I think you don't want to raise your hand. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you want to make an impact, you want to make a difference, but it seems like the cards are totally stacked against you? The, the situation is just hopeless. No matter how much effort you put into that context, you realize that it's not going to amount to much. And, and I can think of all sorts of situations where I found myself in where I was hoping I was going to make a difference, I was going to have an impact, and I realized pretty quickly that no matter how much effort I put into it, it was not going to work how I wanted it to. And one of the examples I can think of is I was quite honored to be asked to speak in a men's retreat up at Joy Bible Camp a number of years ago, and it was one of the first men's weekends where they were inviting people with four-wheelers and fishing and a couple of other things that people did, but most of the people were four-wheeling. And as I said, I was quite honored to get asked to speak. Uh, and I planned a Friday night session that was just going to wow them. And I was going to draw everyone into this topic. Uh, it was geared directly towards men, and I thought it was brave, and I thought it was challenging and probably profound. And uh, I had a session on Saturday and then another session on Sunday. And we got to Friday night, and first of all, the attendance was poor. And secondly, a bunch of the local guys that were participating in the weekend weren't going to show up till Saturday. And so I had this Friday night planned uh, and then realized three quarters of the people aren't even here. And then we got to Saturday and my session was Saturday evening. Well, all day Saturday, everyone was out four-wheeling and fishing and everyone was exhausted by Saturday night, me included. And so not only were the people that stayed, because the locals went home, they didn't stay for the session. So I found myself speaking to a small group of guys who none could keep their eyes open. And even then, I didn't blame myself for that. We were all exhausted. And then the locals never showed up for Sunday either. And so I put all this work into this, this three-part series that I thought we were going to have a bunch of guys transformed, leaving Joy Bible Camp, going home, going to their church, going to their workplace. And it really did not uh, turn out uh, as I had expected. And I'm assuming you can think of some of your own situations. I, I see you, Mike, I'm sure you think you're going to make a difference and have an impact as a teacher. And then you have some of the classes that you've described to me before. And so you realize no matter how much effort, and Mel, I'm sure you know what it's like too, no matter how much effort, you, you've got a bunch of students, maybe they, they have no interest in, in even learning or, or hearing what you're going to say. Or, or you find yourself at work working with a group of people, uh, and, and you want to make a, an impact and make a difference in, in what your group is going to do, but then you realize that, well, everybody else, they're just there to collect a paycheck. They, they could really care less about making a difference. And all of a sudden, you're just this one person in this big group of people, and your efforts are going to not really amount uh, to a whole lot. But have you ever felt that way as a Christian? Living your faith, trying to make a difference, trying to make an impact for the kingdom, and yet living out your faith in a world that's not so friendly towards that faith, and doesn't give you uh, the greatest 
of response. Uh, you know, maybe you're a student and, and you're wanting to make a stand for Jesus at your high school or, or at your university or, or, or at college, and, and, and you suddenly discover that Jesus and, and Christianity, they're the target of most of the jokes of students and teachers and professors. Or maybe you're at work and, and you want to bring the conversation around to, to something to do with Christianity or Jesus or, or the things of God. And then you realize that is about the last conversation that people at work really want to have. Or you work with other people from this community of faith or from other communities of faith uh, and you are offering um, services and, and, and trying to teach principles to uh, a society that has no interest in those principles, and whose ways and and practices crash against the ways and practices that you are trying to exhibit and and to demonstrate uh, and to teach, or or you're trying to show care and compassion to someone, and yet all they do is they respond with slander and unfair and and unjust treatment uh, in response to you. And how does that make you feel? How does it make you want to respond? A lot of Christians choose isolation. So just keep yourself busy with church things all week and just avoid all the people outside that don't share the same things that we share inside. Or maybe it makes you feel really defensive and you want to retaliate. You want to show them. So you get on Facebook and you put the nastiest posts that you can to show those people that don't believe the same things that we believe how wrong they really are. Or maybe you choose compromise. Maybe you just water things down a bit. You don't go there as often. Kind of softens the path. Or maybe you just admit defeat. And you don't even bother trying to make a difference or to make an impact. You know, the people that Peter was writing to knew exactly what we're talking about. They put their faith in Jesus Christ, and their faith in Jesus Christ was the exact reason why they were being mistreated like they were. As we have seen over the number of weeks that we've been in 1 Peter, uh, they've been threatened, they've been ostracized, they've been alienated, they've been persecuted, uh, they have been scattered... And the most pressing question to those who Peter is writing to was this. How do we survive? How do we survive trying to live out our faith in a first century Roman Empire that has no tolerance for our faith? They weren't even thinking of the question, how can I have an impact? How can I make a difference for the kingdom of God? And to this, Peter writes to them, and he pleads with them that they would understand that not only can they survive, but they can thrive, and they can make an impact and have a difference for the kingdom of God, even in the midst of the hostile situations that they find themselves. And so we're going to continue in the letter, and and if you've got your Bible, uh, open it up to chapter 2, and we're going to look at uh, verse 11 and 12, we're actually going to look at it this week, and then two weeks, three weeks from now, we're going to finish up looking at these two verses. Because in these two verses, and they kind of flow into the verses that uh, the praise team read to us this morning, 
Peter's going to share with us five principles for how we can have maximum impact, even in a world that isn't so friendly towards our faith. So if you've got your Bible open, the Pew Bible page is 981. Let's just take a look at verse 11 and 12 of chapter 2. Peter writes, Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage, so, wa- excuse me, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. And so we, we're now coming to the main body of the letter. And really the heart of Peter's teaching. Peter wants us to understand how we can rightly live and rightly be in relationship with those who don't believe the same things that we believe. And doing that in a world, in a society that doesn't believe the things that we believe. And so this week and next week, we're going to kind of look at these two summary uh, verses that kind of set us up for some more detailed instruction that Peter's going to give us and on how do we relate to our masters and bosses? How do we relate to our unsaved spouse? And we're going to see some pretty interesting topics uh, as, as we move on. But in verses 11 and 12, he gives us these five principles. And the first principle is this, and this kind of piggybacks off what we looked at last week. And that is, we have to remember who we are in Jesus Christ. We have to remember and embrace our true identity in Jesus Christ. And I know some of you are thinking, okay, I thought you were going to give us some principles. And I, I was thinking you were going to tell us you know, here's five things that we need to do on the outside, on the exterior, how, how we should behave. And you're talking about internal things, about our identity in Christ. And yet, you just got to hold on. Because in three weeks, we're going to look at some of the exterior things. But today, we're going to look at some interior things. And it's important that we embrace and that we remember our true identity in Christ because who we are in Jesus is the basis for our conduct and for our behavior. And so for the last couple of weeks, and I realize we've had some lousy weather, and some of you missed both. Some of you have only been here for one. Uh, It's important that you go back and listen to some of the stuff. I'm going to repeat some of the stuff uh, at this point. But it's important because you have to be able to grasp who you are in Jesus Christ. And so we looked at a couple of weeks ago that we are who we are because of who Jesus is. And last week we looked at that God has made us who we are so that we will tell the world about who He is and how excellent He is. And so a couple of weeks ago we saw that Jesus is the living stone. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise of redemption, of salvation. And that Jesus has come. And as the living stone we saw, He is the cornerstone. He is the cornerstone, the foundation of the church, the cornerstone of salvation. We saw that he is the capstone, the headstone. He is the pinnacle of God's plan of salvation. His death and resurrection were the climatic moment of God's great plan of salvation. He's the cornerstone. He's the capstone. He's the stumbling stone. And we saw that not everyone accepts this promise fulfilled in Jesus, that where the, where the light of the gospel shines, some people reject 
Jesus. And so people stumble and they fall over Jesus. And as such, we saw that Jesus becomes the touchstone, the standard by which all of us will be judged and evaluated. And as such, as the touchstone, Jesus becomes the dividing line of humanity. And Peter and the rest of Scripture make it very clear that you either choose Jesus for who he is and what he has done, or you reject him. There is no middle ground. So you reject, sorry, you accept, or you reject Jesus, the dividing line of humanity. And then last week we saw that because of who Jesus is, we have an identity. Those of us who have put our faith and our trust and given our life to Jesus. And we saw that Jesus is the living stone. And then Peter says, but we're living stones as well. And he describes this building project that, that is going on. That Jesus is in, uh, in, in a building project of building his church. And he's building it with living stones. And that's those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ. So Jesus takes these dead stones from the pit of sin... And he brings them to life through the new birth. And then he builds them and he places them in this everlasting, continually growing structure called the church. And so those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we're living stones. And then as we kind of concluded last week, I shared with you that those who have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are the ones who will not be put to shame but rather honor is to those who put their faith in Jesus. And I share with you how in first century Rome, honor was a primary value in culture. And honor involved uh, having a positive social standing, uh, reputation, uh, status uh, in the eyes of your fellow people. Shame, on the other hand, was sensitivity to the loss of honor, or it was the actual loss of honor. And so to have a high standing amongst your fellow citizens was of great honor. And to not have that was to be shamed. And first century Christians did not have a whole lot of honor in the eyes of their fellow citizens. In fact, they were constantly being shamed. But what Peter wants to do is to flip the tables on our understanding of honor and shame. And to see that true honor, that's not having a positive standing in the eyes of your fellow citizens. True honor ultimately is arbitrated by God himself. And God has told in the Old Testament, and Peter brings it back into the New Testament, and we see it through other writers of Scripture, that those who put their faith in Jesus Christ will never be put to shame. Actually, Those who reject Jesus will one day stand face to face with God and experience the shame of judgment. And so, those who put their faith in Jesus won't be put to shame, but rather, honor is to them. And the honor that Peter is speaking about is a share in the honor that God has bestowed upon Jesus. And as we concluded last week, really quickly went through verse 9 of chapter 2. And we looked at four phrases that Peter uses to describe that honor that we who have put our faith in Jesus share together. As I said last week, these four phrases aren't phrases that at face value make us jump up and down with joy because we miss a lot of the significance, you know, 2,000 years later. 
A lot of these are foreign terms to us. But the more you uh, spend time trying to understand and grapple with, with, with what these phrases of honor actually mean, the more you will realize the status of honor that you have in God's eyes. And so Peter in verse 9 says that those of you who have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are a chosen people. You are a chosen race. Those who put their faith in Jesus belong to a special race of people. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, what the color of skin you have, what your baggage you brought with you. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you become part of a new chosen race. Those who have been given new birth through the living hope that we have because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And it's not because of anything we've done. It's not because I deserved it. It's not because you're smarter than others. It's, it's not because of your upbringing. But it's solely because God has chosen you. And, and that takes us back right to the very first message uh, in this series. So those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are a chosen race. And then Peter says, you're a royal priesthood. And I'm not going to go into that because last week I did take the time to dig a little bit deeper into that. But those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we've been elevated to a status that we never could have had if it wasn't for what Jesus has done. We have put our faith in Jesus. We're part of God's family. We're connected to King Jesus and we become royalty and we become priests. We have access to God. God has given us the task of, of communicating and, and bringing his message of forgiveness to the people and that we can come directly to the throne of God. And so what honor we have as kings and queens and priests, a priesthood of believers that we are. And then Peter says that we are God's special possession. Sorry, a holy nation first. We are a holy nation. We are a people set apart. We are a people set apart that are to be characterized by a very specific moral quality. And then Peter says that we are God's special possession. God has chosen his people from amongst all other people to be his special possession. And you know, ownership and possession brings with it value and worth. If I was to tell you that the shoes I'm wearing were just a real cheap pair of shoes that really should be thrown out, but I'm trying to get it through the winter without having to wear my new pair of shoes, you would go, those are worthless. But if I told you that these shoes, actually the shoes that Christopher Columbus wore when he discovered, I think North America, is that where he discovered or wherever he came? If I said that these were Christopher Columbus's shoes, you would go, yes, they look like they were Christopher Columbus's shoes, but they would be of immense value. If I said that these were the shoes that Elvis Presley wore in his last concert before he died, they would have a value. Imagine the value that we have as God's special possession. And so that's the honor that we have as those who have put our faith in Jesus Christ. So we're living stones. We are people who will not be put to shame, but who share in such great honor. And then Peter continues in verse 11, and he says, and you're foreigners and exiles. Which really doesn't flow with the stuff that we were just looking at. It kind of causes us to, to stop and, and take notice. We're, we're foreigners and exiles or strangers or sojourners, might be the word that your translation has in it. 
We already looked at in verse 1 of chapter 1 and verse 17 of chapter 1. So I'm not going to go a whole lot into this, but Peter is reminding us once again that we need to reorient our self-understanding in relation to the society that we find ourselves in. That as Christians, we are citizens of heaven, not primarily citizens of the place that we find ourselves in. That as Christians, we are just passing through. That our time here on earth is temporary and short-lived as we look forward to the eternal hope and inheritance that we have in heaven. And hear me on this. Students especially. Guys, I know you're praying. I know, I know. We can't have it both ways. We cannot embrace our identity in Christ to its fullest and then think that we can live like we're no different than the people in this world. You can't have it both ways. And yet how hard we strive to prove that wrong. A foreigner in Peter's day didn't fully participate in the customs and practices of of the host culture. There were things they couldn't do. There's privileges that they didn't have. And hear this. This is, this is what was um, very important to understand about a foreigner in first century. Their foreignness was observed in how they preserved their identity. And so for Peter's readers, the mistreatment that they received was because they didn't fully share and they didn't fully participate in the customs and practices of the day. And so they were shunned because of it. And I think that's our experience as well. That we experience mistreatment, or if nothing less, ridicule, because as a follower of Jesus trying to live holy lives, not compromising any of his commands, there are practices and values and customs in our culture, within our society, that we don't share in and we don't participate in. And a couple of observations or implications. Our rejection by society, our estrangement by society, doesn't equate to being alienated from God. Just because our society rejects us doesn't mean that God's turned his back on us. It doesn't mean that our Christian faith is weak. The reality is we stand in a very long line of people that God has called to live set-apart lives, who is, God has called to live as foreigners and exiles in the place that we find ourselves in. And you ask, well, well how long a line is it? We'll go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Abraham. And all the way through, God has called his people to live set-apart as foreigners, as exiles, as sojourners, as pilgrims, passing our way through until we get to our final destination. And then the second implication is this. We have to maintain and develop a heavenly perspective. We've got to stop living down here like this is all there is. Like it is great to get the recognition and honor 
from our world for doing noble things and for working hard and, 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 and enjoying success. But if you have settled on the f- belief that that is all there is, you are so sorely missing out on what God wants and intends for you. Our purposes, our priorities, our possessions, our desires, the things that we're passionate about, the things that bring us pleasure have to be filtered through a heavenly perspective. So we have to develop and maintain that heavenly perspective. So principle one, remember and embrace your true identity that you have in Jesus Christ. And then we come to the second principle, and this is the one that we're going to end on this morning. And in verse 11, Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires. Your, your translation may say uh, fleshly lusts. If you have an ESV, it might say passions of the flesh. So Peter says, principle two, abstain from passions of the flesh. And again, you might be going, okay, again, another internal thing. When are we going to start looking at external principles? But this one is so important because to have maximum impact on the outside there must, be, there must be maximum effort on the inside. A prerequisite to having an impact living out our faith in this world is making sure that we're winning the battle on the inside. And so Peter says, abstain, which literally means to refuse to feed the passions of the flesh. And you might be going, what in the world are the passions of the flesh? Or what are sinful desires? Fleshly lusts. They are the desires that arise from our fallen nature. They are desires to perform acts that bring self-gratification instead of glorifying God. When acted upon, they become sin. When submitted to they conform and they shape us. And I'm sure when I said passions of the flesh or fleshly lusts, our mind goes immediately to sexual lust. And that's included. But when Peter says passions of the flesh, he isn't just talking about selfish, indulgent, natural appetites. He's talking about a countless number of of, of things that become sin when we act upon them. Envy, slander, greed, idolatry, hatred. You can keep adding to the list. Can I ask some pointed questions? Have you ever felt the urge to feel or to respond negatively to someone because they're different than you? Have you ever wanted to have an affair? Have you ever had the desire to have premarital sex? Have you ever been tempted to cheat at school or or cheat at work? Have you ever had an urge to tell a lie or a false story about somebody so that you can put yourself in better stead? Have you ever been tempted to lie so that it it can improve your standing? 
Have you ever wondered what it would be like to not be a Christian for one weekend so you could do whatever you want? Have you ever been tempted to compromise your faith so that you would be more accepted by the people that you're hanging around with or or you find yourself or by the people around you in your neighborhood? Peter says, don't do it. Those are the passions of the flesh and they are waging war with your soul. And by soul, Peter means your entire life. Your identity in Christ. There's a war going on. The passions of the flesh want to destroy you and to destroy your testimony. Chuck Giannotti works with a guy named Bob Deffenbaugh who, who has some great writings on all sorts of passages from Scripture. And, and he goes in great lengths talking about fleshly lusts or passions uh, of the flesh. And I wrote some of it down, and, and I sometimes question how effective it is reading quotes up here. Not sure if you listen or you tune me out, but I have a feeling that some of those pointed questions, at least one of them, might have caught your attention. You know what passion of the flesh, what sinful desire is your worst enemy. The one that's most easy to or the one that will most easily trip you up. So think of that while you listen to what Bob Deffenbaugh has to say about fleshly lusts. They're inconsistent with biblical holiness. They're hostile to God and to his word. They seek to seduce us from obedience to God and attempt to make us slaves again to our own self-gratifying appetites. Satan and culture employ these lusts to draw us away from God. They tempt us to avoid suffering for Christ and instead to seek instant pleasures and gratification for ourselves. They are deceptive and corrupting and shape us in a way that is contrary to godliness in the image of Christ. They're hostile to God and opposed to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. They're continually waging war against our spiritual lives, seeking to attract our affections and attention to this temporary world rather, to, rather than to our true eternal home. People were at war. And the real battle is not on the outside, it's on the inside. Every one of us is waging a war against the passions of the flesh. You see, sin begins in the mind. And if we can win the battle on the inside, we can win the battle on the outside. And if we can win the battle on the outside, we will have maximum impact for the kingdom. And so we're in a war. The passions of the flesh are waging war against our very soul. And Peter says to abstain, refuse to feed those passions. Well, how do we do that? Where do we begin? Let me just conclude with a couple of practical steps that you can put in place. The one is to admit the areas that you struggle in. You know, I know the passions of the flesh that I struggle with. Admit them. Admit them to God. Admit them to a close friend. Seek someone to be your accountability partner. And I know there are people here and you have an area in your life that you have sought someone to be your accountability partner. I encourage you to do that. 
A second thing is, don't create a vacuum. But push out any room for passions of the flesh. I was reminded of something this week as I was driving down to the States and the weather was horrible. That when you finally give in to putting your windshield washers on and spraying the windows, you're done. Because you can go for a while and see through that dirty window, but as soon, I don't know, maybe if you haven't experienced it, but as soon as you put windshield washer fluid on your window and wipe it, you're constantly having to do that. And that's what it's like with the passions of the flesh. When you open the door just once and say yes and sin, the floodgates open. And the alternative is to crowd it out. To develop and maintain that heavenly perspective. When your passions and your pursuits, when your mind is filled with the things of God and you've set your hope in Jesus and his return and our inheritance in heaven, there is no room for the passions of the flesh. So don't create a vacuum. Don't put windshield washer fluid on your window. Crowd those fleshly passions out. Third, always be on watch. Don't get caught off guard and be on the offensive. A preacher tells a story of of, uh, one of his congregants who was a Marine in Iraq and came back and was sharing with him some of the experience he had in Iraq. And, And one of the things this Marine said was that no matter how hot it was, he always wore his helmet and his bulletproof vest. Because regardless of how uncomfortable that might have been, you never knew when the enemy would attack. Always be on guard. Because you never know when the enemy is going to attack. And he also shared with this preacher the rules of engagement that they had in Iraq. And when he first got there, the rule of engagement was you don't shoot unless you're first shot at. And so what was happening for the first few weeks that they had this compound in Iraq was that they had people coming right up to the perimeters of the compound with grenades and machine guns. And obviously it was a perilous situation. So very quickly the rules of engagement changed. If they saw anyone approaching the perimeter of the compound, shoot first. Don't take any chances. Be on the offensive. Don't, get on, don't be caught off guard. And I think that's what we need to be uh, when it comes to these passions of the flesh. We have to be on guard. And be on the offensive. Do whatever is necessary to deal with the passions of the flesh that most trip you up so that you don't fall victim and they don't drag you down. And then finally... Call on God for mercy. Don't give up because you screwed up. If you're a follower of Jesus, the promise of 1 John, that if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Cry out to God for mercy and cry out to God for help. Galatians 5 verse 16, so I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. We don't have to do this all alone. 
How can we abstain? How can we refuse to feed the passions of the flesh? Walk by the Spirit. Every day, commit your life to God afresh. God, help me to walk in your Spirit today. Give me the power of your Spirit to resist all the temptations and the desires and the urges of the passions of the flesh. Lord, help me make an impact for your kingdom by first dealing with what's going on on the inside. Because if we can do that, we can have a maximum impact. Daniel, come on up and uh, close us with one song.